Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. The Cumberland River watershed is part of the third most biodiverse freshwater region in the world. Thousands of species rely on the land and waters in our region. Yet across the world, biodiversity is declining at unprecedented and alarming rates. When many of us think about where wildlife lives, we probably picture wide open parklands, protected national parks, and remote areas away from people. But biodiversity is also found right near our cities. From April 30th to May 3rd, Nashville is one of over 400 cities around the world participating in the City Nature Challenge. During this one weekend, people across the world get out to find, observe, and share wildlife in their city. By using the app iNaturalist, these observations help scientists around the world understand what's happening with biodiversity. Here's a great example of the power of iNaturalist. In 2019, some California beachgoers on a walk stumbled upon a giant sunfish. And when I say giant, I mean seven feet long. Photos of the fish were uploaded to iNaturalist. That's where the story gets even better. A researcher saw the photo and realized it was something a bit different. Sunfish, with the super fun scientific name Mola Mola, are common along the coasts of California. But this fish turned out to be a different species, one only found in the Southern Hemisphere. Let's just say the scientists were excited, aptly exclaiming, holy mola. The sunfish story is just one example of the power of making observations on iNaturalist. Sure, many of your photos will be of things we all know about, but you never know when you may get something unique. For me, this happened in August of 2018. I saw a funky-looking jumping spider outside of the Cumberland River Compact offices. I knew it was a jumping spider, but it looked totally different. After uploading it to iNaturalist, fellow naturalists helped provide an identification, and I found out it was the first species observation in Tennessee. That little spider didn't make as far of a journey as the sunfish, but it was still exhilarating to know I found the first species in Tennessee. In today's episode, we talk with two biodiversity experts. First, we'll hear from Kim Bailey, a lifelong nature enthusiast and naturalist extraordinaire. She'll share more about how you can explore biodiversity in our cities and what we find right here in Nashville. Then we'll hear from Richard Hitt with the local chapter of Wild Ones. Richard will share about what we can do in our own backyards to make them great habitat for Tennessee biodiversity. Well, Kim, thanks for joining me today. Could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are? I'm Kim Bailey, and I am a naturalist at Warner Park. I've been there almost 25 years. I literally love every living thing. I think that's the best way to describe me. People always ask me, what's your specialty? And it's like, well, (laughs) I feel like I love everything, so I probably don't have a specialty, but I really enjoy birds and insects and trees and wildflowers, so the list could go on and on. But my joy is to share um, what I know and to learn more at all times and to kind of engage other people with nature. That's awesome. Loving a little bit of everything is great. It keeps things exciting. You get to always learn, learn new things. 
So today we've been talking about biodiversity. And so let's just start kind of with the basics. What is biodiversity and why is it important? Well, biodiversity really refers to the variety of life forms on the planet. It includes plants, animals, fungi, all the microorganisms, all the life forms here. And it can be discussed on multiple levels. You can talk about it globally or within an ecosystem or in a community. So um, you can look at it different ways, but it's important for many reasons. And one is resiliency. That's a big buzzword right now after our floods because Nashville wants to be a resilient city, which means it can bounce back after a catastrophe. And a diversity of species enables that to happen. A great example is the, the American chestnut story. In the early 1900s, the chestnut blight um, got to America and it just ravaged our, our chestnut trees, which was the dominant tree in our forest at the time. We lost over 4 billion trees in less than 40 years. And because of biodiversity, an oak tree, or, or many species of oak trees, came up and took the place of the chestnut. It also is a mass producing tree, which is um, a nut producing tree vital for the wildlife that depends on nuts and seeds in the winter in particular. And so it, it filled this void and without biodiversity that would not have happened. Human health is another reason that biodiversity is important. Um, we literally depend on biodiversity for survival. We have a diversity of organisms providing food, pollination services, medicine, materials for shelter. We have 50 to 100 species of bacteria living in our gut helping us digest food. So um, we depend on a vast array of organisms. Ecological services is a third reason my, of my top three, and that is because they improve water quality and air quality. If you think about a bog or a wetland, there are lots of different wetland plants that filter heavy metals that prevent those metals from getting in our streams. So water quality, air quality are really important services they provide too. So that's just a few of the reasons we should care about biodiversity. I love that. I usually think about, you know, biodiversity and a lot of times the things that we can't see as well and the ways that we don't know all the connections between living things in the world. And so just the fact that we don't know things is another good reason to care about what we do have and, and the biodiversity that we have. Absolutely. And you always hear about don't cut down the rainforest because it is a, it's a pharmacy that we don't even know yeah. what, what's there right now. So, um, that's, that's why we need to protect them. Yeah, there's also some interesting mental health stats about how being in a more biodiverse landscape or a landscape with biodiversity that we're familiar with is makes us healthier and, and have better well-being. And so there, again, a lot of those connections we might not even know everything about with biodiversity. Absolutely. Biodiversity truly makes me happier. And tests have shown that it, it does increase the happiness factor in people. And I was thinking about how Saturday I went to this really special place for wildflowers. I left at eight in the morning. I got home at seven that night. My husband was just like, where have you been? <laughs> just like, I couldn't leave the forest. It was so beautiful. And I, I encountered at least 30 other wildflower enthusiasts that were taking pictures and identifying. And it just brings pure joy. And um, even with um, birders, you think about their life list and how they will travel around the world to try to add one new species with a specific beak or specific behavior to their list. Yeah, that's amazing. and definitely brings joy to a lot of people. And when people think about nature, I think they tend to think about it as something over there or out there and kind of away from cities. 
but we also have a lot of biodiversity in our urban areas. Why is urban biodiversity and urban nature important as well? Well, we just um, mentioned a bunch of reasons because if you if you need air quality and water quality in the rural areas, you certainly need them in, in the urban areas. They um, they provide all those things, the, the pollination services, et cetera, that we've discussed. I also think it's really important for families who can't get out of the city to be able to make that connection to nature. There's been a lot of books written and articles written in the last 10, 15 years about how a nature connection is essential for humans to understand our role in the ecology of the world and, and why it's important to protect the land. And I think of, of kids who get to see the food chain in action. We've had kids watch a hawk take a squirrel and or a snake grab a fish in the creek and just the joy and the light bulbs going off in their minds as they observe this kind of thing. So I think it's really important that everybody be able to touch and see and experience nature in a real way. Absolutely. And Nashville is lucky to have a lot of places to go and explore nature in our urban setting and also explore our urban biodiversity. So do you have any cool examples of urban biodiversity that we have here in Nashville? Yes. So first thing that came to mind was the Nashville crayfish. Now this is not something we can all just run out and go see, but it's cool to know it's here. This is one of 90 species in, in Nashville, 90 species of crayfish. And, um, but it's endemic, which means it's only found here in the Davidson County area in the Mill Creek and its tributaries. It's actually um, being threatened right now for delisting. They're trying to develop that Mill Creek. And so that's, that's something that Cumberland River, River Compact and other organizations are fighting right now. But that's a cool example of something specifically here. If you hike, uh, walk along the Greenway at Shelby in early spring, you'll hear at least four to five species of frogs singing their own song. It's just a cacophony of, song, of sound in, in the night air. And so you'll find a lot of diversity there. At Warner, we have over 170 tree species and we have tree guides for you to come learn those. We have almost 300 wildflowers throughout the year. And then if you go to Radnor Lake during migration, I really think this is the best place in Tennessee to see birds. And you would not believe how probably, you know, you can get a, a 50, 50 species in a good day. Lots of warblers, vireos coming through. So our parks are incredible jewels that allow you to see diversity up close and personal. That's amazing. I love all those examples and all the different types from frogs to birds to flowers. We've got a little bit of everything here in Nashville. Yes. And so for people who want to support biodiversity in our urban areas like Nashville or even in their own backyards and neighborhoods, what are some of the things that they can be doing? You know, my favorite thing to tell people is to plant native plants. If you have a yard at all, or even if you have a patio, you can do a couple of pots. But um, Doug Tallamy is an author who is educating people right now that insects and plants have evolved together. And so when we go pick a tree from Washington State and plant it in our yard, there is no insect that, that uses that tree. And it's really important to support our insect populations because thinking about that food chain again, there are so many animals, herps, birds, mammals, that all, and other insects that all feed on insects. So um, that's one cool example, just to plant native plants. And then um, you can also provide things like mason bee houses. These are little bees that they're good pollinators that, that like to make little, um, you can make a little 
bug house if you look it up online and they can um, build a little nest in these these holes that you create. Protecting our water is always important because life requires water and so I think disposing of your dog waste. Everybody, a lot of my friends say, what's the big deal with dog waste? And raccoons poop in the forest. Well, dogs have a lot of bacteria in their feces. And so this can get in our, our streams and make them unhealthy. So if you can just bag and dispose of your dog poop, that's a huge thing. Picking up litter, of course, is important. And then trying to prevent erosion in your yard or anywhere you see it because sediment's the number one pollutant in water. So I'm just, um, thinking of lots of ways to create healthy habitat for um, biodiversity in our city. Yeah, there's so many different things that you can do and it's what makes sense for you and sort of starting small. So like you said, if you are planting native, picking one, one plant and adding it to your garden or choosing a pot and kind of adding up all of these things, every single little thing that we do is helping protect biodiversity. Absolutely. And I know coming up, we have the City Nature Challenge at the end of April, first week and weekend in May. And it's gonna be Nashville's fifth year of participating, which I'm personally very excited about. And this is a challenge where people can get out and find urban biodiversity and use the app iNaturalist in order to record their observations. So Kim, I know you have been participating for the past five years. What are you excited about for the City Nature Challenge this year? You know, um, to have a, a real reason, a specific goal of four days to, dedicated to nature observation is like a dream come true for a naturalist. Um, so I am, I'm excited about getting out and, and looking under rocks and looking on tree bark and in the streams, getting into Warner Park, wherever I find myself. And I'm going to be documenting all weekend. And to know that all over the world, there are cities participating in this and people learning about their own habitats. That makes me really happy. I like thinking that there's families that might have never done this. It might make some new discoveries. So really just, it's just a great, great event for um, people to learn about the, the neighbors they live with. Yeah, I love the City Nature Challenge as being a way to get started in exploring nature around you or keep doing it if it's something that you do all the time. And I know I like iNaturalist because it's very user-friendly and it can help you make identifications, if you have no idea what you're seeing. And I know exploring nature can sometimes be overwhelming when people think about, man, you know, there's 300 wildflowers. How am I ever going to figure out what exactly I'm looking at? Do you have other recommendations for people who are looking at just kind of getting started exploring biodiversity? First of all, I, I'm so glad you brought, of course, the iNaturalist app is not just for the City Nature Challenge. I use it year round. And it's sort of the beginning place. So if you take a picture of an insect you find in the corner of your cabinet and it gives you six suggestions, then my next suggestion would be to get a, an insect guidebook. And my favorite one is Ken Kaufman's Insect Guide. It's got different life stages of a lot of the different insects. So I love that book. So then you, you, know, you would explore the field guide to learn more. Some other guidebooks I like are Rita Venable's Butterflies of Tennessee. I love Wildflowers of Tennessee, the Ohio Valley, and the Southern Appalachians. And then I think Peterson's Eastern Trees is my go-to tree book. So um, come to the nature centers. There are four in this city. We've got one at Warner Park, Shelby Bottoms, Beeman, and Bell's Bend. Ask a naturalist there if you need help identifying something. Or um, We often have resources in our libraries that you can use while on site. And we would love to help you just get excited about nature and get out there and explore. 
Absolutely. And also I always like to remind myself that not everybody knows what every single thing is that they see. So it's okay if you're like, I've never seen this before. That's cool. It's an opportunity to discover something and, and learn about it. And so that sort of permission to not know what something is, is often really helpful when you're getting started exploring biodiversity. Absolutely. And you know, I, I bet once a month at least, I see something I've never seen before. And that's what I love about my passion and my job is that I get to learn all the time. And, and, and again, it's that biodiversity link that because here's something new and I've, I've been studying nature all my life and here's an insect I've never seen. It brings excitement into my life. And so I think you'll find it, it does the same for you. Absolutely. You're never done exploring nature in your own backyard or anywhere around the city. I really hope if you're a first time um, City Nature Challenge participant that you will spend at least 30 minutes checking out your backyard or around the sidewalk cracks or your, uh, your house and just see how many invertebrates you can find. I love invertebrates. And um, don't just look for the big things like the tree in your yard, but look for the tiny things. So that would be um, my advice to, to, to see how many things you can find in the weekend. Awesome. Well, we are excited for the City Nature Challenge, and thanks again, Kim, for joining me today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. April is Earth Month here at the Cumberland River Compact. Even though we celebrate the Earth every month, we plan some extra special celebrations this year. Thanks to the support from the Tennessee Valley Authority, we hosted camping cleanups and removed over 3,000 pounds of litter and tires at some of our favorite recreation areas in Tennessee. Learn more about these volunteer opportunities and more at cumberlandrivercompact.org volunteer. Thanks for joining me, Richard. So just to start, could you introduce yourself and um, tell us a little bit about Wild Ones? Uh, yes, my name is Richard Hitt. Uh, we have a local Wild Ones chapter here in the Middle Tennessee area. We started about two and a half years ago, so we're fairly young. Wild Ones is a national organization, national nonprofit organization that promotes environmentally sound landscaping practices to support biodiversity through the preservation and restoration of native plant communities. And so the bio biodiversity is what we focus on, maintaining, improving biodiversity. We do that by encouraging the use of native plants in the home landscape and using sustainable landscaping practices. So for example, not spraying insecticide all over your plants because we're trying to improve biodiversity, not, not get rid of it. The local Wildlands chapter, of course, is doing what everybody else is doing and that's staying at home for the most part, but we uh, have been happy to have things like Zoom to use to have our meetings. So we've continued with our monthly meetings. We usually have a speaker, uh, sometimes an expert in an area, sometimes not, but just somebody with some experience. And so they're educational uh, meetings. In addition to our monthly meetings, uh, we, are, we have continued our volunteer native plant gardening at places like uh, some Nashville Metro public schools that have native gardens. Uh, Wild Ones uh, Nature Sanctuary in Brentwood that has several native gardens. So we've continued doing that because we can keep the numbers small. Uh, we have suspended things like plant ID hikes, but we are about to resume those again. So we will go into one of the parks or one of the uh, natural areas and we will do a hike and work on ID in as many plants as we can. So that's an important component too, is building the knowledge base of our native uh, flora. 
We also have educational classes and uh, for fundraising, we will do native plant sales. We have one coming up in May. We'll have um, probably 600 or so individual plants for sale, many, many different species, but we're not a full service nursery. So if you really want you know, a good selection of native plants, you would want to go to one of the native plant nurseries uh, in town. The motivation for all of this really is that biodiversity is not in good shape. The UN study that came out in May of 2020 reported that biodiversity is not only decreasing, it's decreasing at a faster and faster rate each year. So that's bad news followed by worse news. And so the motivation for doing this is there isn't another choice. And so we have to do this starting in the home landscape more so than we have in the past because I think about 85% of the land east of the Mississippi River is privately owned. So we can't rely on our national parks or our state forests to solve this problem for us. We have to look at the entirety of sustainability and work at it at that level. And one component of sustainability is providing the resources necessary for our insects and other animals to do well. I think it's so cool the work that you guys do and that focus on biodiversity because we talk about native plants a lot and hear about them, but making that connection to biodiversity is really cool. So why exactly is there that connection between native plants, you know, native landscapes and biodiversity? Well, I'll give you some examples. Uh, when I first moved into my house here in Franklin in 2004, uh, I had zero native plants in my yard. I had the typical landscaping plants of the 1990s, uh, yew shrubs, Manhattan euonymus, firepower nandina, just, you know, all these things that sit there and they're beautiful evergreen plants and they do almost nothing to feed our native insects, our native animals. So as I slowly started taking those out and replacing, replacing them with native plants, the life in my yard really picked up a lot. Um, I have uh, several host plants for butterflies now and, and, other, and moths as well. And um, the number of, of butterflies that I see, um, I have milkweed for monarchs, has, has really picked up substantially. Birds are happier because they have uh, caterpillars to eat. And so when I go out in the yard now, I, I don't have to drive to Warner Parks or some other park to see this. I can see it in my yard. So the connection comes from the fact that the native plants and the native fauna co-evolved together uh, over the many millions of years. They've established a very stable food web where at the bottom level, we have the plants that capture the sunlight and convert it to energy. And that's where the story stops if you have exotic plants. With native plants, the second level can come in. And so we have uh, caterpillars, for example, that can consume the plant material and it's a very specialized relationship since plants don't really want to be eaten. They've developed chemical uh, mechanisms to discourage things from eating them. But caterpillars tend to figure this out over the long run and made up with a particular species or group of plants, develop the enzymes to get around the nasty tasting leaves and actually consume the leaves and capture that energy. And then maybe a bird will come along, eat a caterpillar, that energy goes up to the next level and the process continues. And so it's, it's a very delicate uh, system that, that humans have been uh, sort of experimenting with for a long time. And so we're trying to reestablish a more stable food web, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I think that's so important and something that people 
don't see when they plant something that's maybe non-native. You, you see it as a beautiful plant, maybe it has flowers, you think it's going to attract pollinators, but not really seeing those invisible connections and those connections that we might not even know about and, and how that native plant is connected to something that's consuming it and building up that food web. So it's kind of one of those house of cards situations. We don't know what, what is going to happen if we pull on a certain certain part of that connection. Yeah, it seems like we still know very little about all these connections. We've, we've discovered, you know, through careful observation, certain connections, but there's a lot more going on out there than we even understand today. Absolutely. So for somebody who is wanting to support biodiversity in their backyard, and you've mentioned native plants, what are some things that they can do to get started? Well, one thing you could do is you could find a search engine and type in native plant finder. And that will take you to a National Wildlife Federation page that has in it for your zip code, it will have uh, the top performing plants for you to plant to support biodiversity. So as an example, let's say you're shopping around for a tree that you can plant. And if you were to look at which trees support the largest number of caterpillar species, that would almost certainly turn out to be something in the oak genus. Now, Tennessee is fortunate that we have so many different oaks. We have 22 different oak species that are native inside the state of Tennessee. And even if you need a small oak, we have two dwarf oaks in Tennessee that you could consider. But of course, most oaks are huge or will get huge given enough time. So you have to be a little bit careful to take into account uh, how big the plant you're planting will get, but there's plenty of options. So for this particular region, Middle Tennessee, most of the counties here, the oak genus supports around 450 different species of caterpillars. Now, if you're worried about have, you won't have that many on any one oak, but if you're worried about seeing all the holes in your leaf, you can employ what is jokingly referred to as this 10 step method for fixing the holes in your leaves. And that's to take 10 steps backwards and then you won't notice the holes. Now, the oaks are the best performing uh, tree species for biodiversity. Uh, second to the oaks in this area would be uh, the cherry trees actually, not the exotic Japanese cherries, but the black cherry, the Prunus serotina and the American cherry. That's a, which is a small tree. Uh, of course, the black cherry gets to be quite large. And so this National Wildlife Federation site was developed by Doug Tallamy and some of his graduate students at the University of Delaware. And it's still very much a work in progress. Most of the um, insect data that the entomologists have collected over the past several decades only got down to the genus level. And it's only now that they're trying to take it down to the species level. So. Most of the information available would be that oaks are best, but which oak is best, that's not really known right now. But the, the, the site is very helpful, even though it's kind of an abated form at this, at this point. Also, um, native plant nurseries are good at giving advice uh, for what to do. You describe your situation, sun, shade, east, west, and they can make really good recommendations for plants to, to fit your need. Are you trying to get butterflies or you wanna make your birds happier? and they can point you in the right direction with plants. Yeah, that's great. And an earlier episode of our podcast, we actually talked all about picking your, the right native plants, looking at your soil, your pH, understanding what, what works for you. So we'll make sure that that is connected with this episode as well. And I think another way that people um, sometimes think about 
cultivating biodiversity is just letting things grow wild and supporting the, the pollinators that might come to the little flowers that we see in our yard that we might think of as weeds. And so how do people balance sort of cultivating a space for biodiversity and just letting things grow wild and letting things come? Well, we kind of live in a post wild world. That is, if you stand back and let things grow wild, what you'll see is an enormous collection of invasive and non-native plants. So I have a part of my yard that I would say, let's say I neglect it. Well, if I go back in that part of my yard, I'm gonna see many, many non-native yard weeds. That would be the henbit, the purple dead nettle, the, the non-native chickweed, um, the non-native strawberry. And the flowering plants can support nectar, can give nectar to support biodiversity but very few things can host on these non-native plants because they didn't co-evolve with these non-native plants. Okay, so I don't recommend just letting things go because you'll end up with a large collection of non-native species that could provide a little bit of nectar uh, to our insects, but certainly not host material for the insects. So I recommend uh, putting in things like ground covers, native ground covers, if you want to not have uh, grass growing in an area, but you will need to manage what you put in uh, in any event to prevent this sort of uh, flood of non-natives. Another thing that you should do is remove any invasive plants that you have in your yard. And so I had a, when I moved in, I had a part of my yard that had some bush honeysuckle popping up in it. I eventually removed that. And then what came up was this, plants that were already in the seed bank, like white snake root, a fall blooming white flowered plant that's really a pollinator magnet, and various other things came up. And anything that was not native, I removed it and I let the things that were native come up. And I didn't manage that particularly other than that. I didn't, I didn't install anything in that part of the yard. I just got rid of things that didn't belong there. So that is a, a, a method you can use if you're willing to just do that. I think that's really interesting, kind of the way that you manage it, then let it let what's in that native seed bank come up a little bit more wild, manage that and sort of keep keep at it because those invasive species are just, I mean, they'll they'll cut through anything if you've got them in your garden there. And are there specific recommendations? I know you've talked about the oak trees here in Tennessee. Are there other really biodiversity friendly plants that you would recommend for sort of the middle Tennessee area? Uh, yes, generally um, true, not just in Middle Tennessee, the goldenrods are a phenomenal biodiversity plant. More, uh, more insects touch goldenrods than any other genus of herbaceous plants. You may want to avoid the Canada goldenrod. It's kind of a monster and gets really huge, but it does work in terms of supporting biodiversity. But um, like I live in an HOA controlled neighborhood, so I try to pay a little more attention to the visual appearance. And so I use some more smaller and better behaved goldenrods rather than the Canada goldenrod. Uh, sunflowers work great too. The Helianthus genus, the Thoroughwort genus, scientifically called Eupatorium, is not really a well-known or popular landscaping plant, but it, is, it really is third in the list of genuses of herbaceous plants that support biodiversity. The other thing that I suggest people keep in mind is that when you are doing these flowering plants, uh, you wanna try to have things in bloom across the growing season, say for example, March through November. And so if you're having trouble in the month of um, May or June, 
you want to pick out plants. Uh, one would be uh, anise hyssop that will be coming into flower uh, in June. If you're running out of material in the fall, you should look at some of the late blooming asters and there's several to choose from. Uh, willow leaf aster is a good one, for example. And so it would be good to have something in flower all the way across the growing season so that butterflies and other insects would have some nectar to, to consume. The other thing uh, that you need to be concerned about is you don't wanna have too many of one single plant because we have a lot of specialist bees that is specialized to the point of depending on a single species of flower that produces a particular type of pollen. They, they depend on that pollen to feed their young. And so it's an essential part of being a solitary bee. And so the more different types of plants you can have, the better. But if this is overwhelming, just start small, take baby steps, and then across a number of years, you'll, you'll get there. It can be very daunting to, to think about the whole process, but the main thing is just get started, take a few steps, and learn as you go. As you put in a new plant, you'll learn what comes to that plant. Is it taking pollen back to its uh, nest, or is it just consuming nectar? And so it can be a very educational and enjoying uh, experience. And you can do this every day, and you can't drive to a park every day and, and get the same experience, probably. I love that. Focusing on the joy of your own backyard and the own, your own biodiversity that you can find when you help cultivate an area and starting small, you know, maybe is it the pathway you walk from into your house and start with planting really cool biodiversity plants there? You'll be able to see those caterpillars and butterflies more often as well. Is there a favorite thing that you have found in your backyard? I've really enjoyed watching caterpillars develop on my plants, especially the showy the showy butterflies like the swallowtails. So I have the spice bush planted so I can see the spice bush swallowtail uh, butterfly. I have our state wildflower passion vine, purple passion vine planted so I can see the gulf fritillaries and the variegated fritillaries. I have pipe vine planted, woolly pipe vine, so I can see the pipe vine swallowtail butterflies. But really watching the caterpillars consume is, is very entertaining to me. Then there are some plants like mountain mint. It is a total pollinator magnet for about five weeks in the late summer. And so one of my plant friends who lives in the neighborhood and, and I joked that we could just sit out there in a chair and watch things for about 30 minutes before we got bored because I've counted as many as 11 different flying species nectaring on that plant at one time. Many uh, hoverflies, wasps, various kinds of bees and I'm no expert at identifying bees. I'm learning, learning that. Same thing with wasps. But uh, so usually I'll just take a lot of pictures and let iNaturals make a few suggestions for me. And I'm slowly learning a little bit about that. That's awesome. We also have um, a few plants that have the big caterpillars on them. And it's so fun to go out there and see them munching. And then the next day, figure out what leaf they're on now. And just sort of you get to know them before they, while they're sitting there on your plant. It's really fun. That's right. One year I had um, so many Gulf fritillary caterpillars in my front yard, I had to do a rescue project and take them to the backyard so they would have more plant material because they had completely stripped the uh, passion vine in my front yard. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, that's good. You were keeping an eye on them and helping them out. That's awesome. Well, this was great. I learned a lot. I also have a lot of plants to write down to research and learn more about to add to our garden. So thank you for that. Um, really looking forward to promoting more biodiversity in our yard. 
We hope you join us and take the City Nature Challenge from April 30th to May 3rd to learn more about your backyard biodiversity. It's easy to participate and there are events in Middle Tennessee where you can meet up with fellow nature enthusiasts to participate. You can find all the details on our website at cumberlandrivercompact.org events. One great way to get started exploring backyard biodiversity is to go ahead and download the iNaturalist app and start practicing in your own neighborhood or backyard. Head outside, flip a rock, look up close at leaves, and discover something new. We can't wait to explore Nashville's wild side with you. Thank you.